Welcome to the Shiro Podcast, where we celebrate women in the legal profession and discuss some of the challenges and issues they face. This podcast is brought to you by the Texas Young Lawyers Association. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Shiro Podcast from Texas Young Lawyers Association. I am your Diversity Committee Chair, Lauren Renee Sepulveda, and also your TYLA representative for District 13. Today, I'm with a very special guest, a Judge Renee Rodriguez-Betancourt of the 449th Judicial District Court in Hidalgo County, Texas. Judge Betancourt, welcome to the podcast. We're really, really glad that you decided to join us. Well, thank you. Uh, It is a great honor to be asked to do this uh, anytime that I have the opportunity to uh, empower and support other potential female attorneys. uh, I really, really am excited to do it, so I'm very honored to be here. Thank you. So, Judge Betancourt, I just want to give the audience a little bit of background about yourself. Uh, you were actually born and raised in Edinburgh, Texas, which is the county seat of Hidalgo. And uh, you come from a very big family. We have a lot of lawyers that are here that from your family. And they're very big uh, advocates for our local community. Um, you attended the University of Texas Pan American, which is now UTRGV, and uh, obtained your Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science there in two and a half years. Mm-hmm. That must have taken some dedication to get through that fast. Yes, it, it did. Um, that's correct. I was born and raised to Edinburgh, here in Edinburgh, Texas. Uh, my parents are Ricardo and Olga Rodriguez. Um, actually, my immediate family is a little smaller. We're a family of five, but my extended family is a huge family uh, that consists of a lot of different professionals, specifically attorneys uh, and also female attorneys who, uh, yes, we were taught at a very young age that community came, family was first and community was second. And we did everything that we could. And the purpose of as being a big family is to, to always help the community, to help others and never expect anything in return. So that's kind of the background that I come from. So your family is very politically active in the community and they're huge advocates about giving back Um, donating their time, whether it's through just public community service or through elected positions, um, school board, county, city government. Is that where you got your drive to give back to the community? Yes. uh, Since we were young, I remember uh, my grandfather, Nicolas Palacios, and my uncle, Nico Palacios uh, Jr., dropping us off at a polling site when we were about five, six years old, gave us a taco and a yard sign on one hand (laughs) and said, you're going to sit there and, you know, go ahead and and make sure that the voters see your sign and yell loud. And um, that was kind of the world that we were introduced to. And we knew what it was to block walk before other kids knew what it was to you know, do jump rope or play hopscotch. Um, And it was taught to us that it wasn't so much about obtaining a title or being in political office uh, in order to help your community. Being in political office was a way to do that. Being in a position that was going to help the community uh, is what we would strive for, not just for the title or recognition. And that's what, uh, when I when I uh, learned that the 449th District Court was available or was going to open up, um, that at one point the incumbent wasn't cons- was considering not running for re-election, um, it wasn't so much, again, about running to be a judge. I knew that the 449th had a specific purpose, and mm-hmm. that purpose was going to allow me to help the community, specifically the juveniles in Hidalgo County. Okay. So I'd like to go back uh, Mm -hmm. to your early childhood. Um, You really had, I guess, a different childhood than most lawyers or future lawyers had. Uh, Your parents were very active in the community, but they were also involved in agricultural labor. How did that affect you growing up and inspire you uh, once you became older? 
Well, um, my father and my mother, uh, we grew up as migrant workers. My parents actually are still migrant workers to this day. Uh, my parents are actually, as we speak, up north in uh, West Texas. They, my father packages watermelon and my mother makes food for the workers. Um, and so growing up, um, we were, one, taught to have a very strong work ethic. Mm -hmm. Two, we were taught to respect and appreciate everybody, no matter where they came from. Some of the workers that my father had were, you know, they weren't the best of the community, but they were trying to rehabilitate themselves and work. And sometimes those, my father would say, those individuals were some of the harder working individuals and they could take, you know, the heat mm -hmm. and, and the things that come with being a migrant or a field worker. Um, and so also growing up, you know, we saw a lot of injustices for our parents, being that they weren't educated. My mother barely had a ninth grade education. My father had the same and later went to go get his GED, but they were taken advantage of many times. Um, you know, my father thought a handshake was significant as far as a contract was concerned. Yeah. And, you know, he was always taught differently because a contract is a contract. And when you don't have a signed document, there's no contract. So, you know, a lot of times my father would work uh, very hard and he would get shortchanged. And so we saw this growing up and we knew that, you know, we had to get educated to help our parents some way, somehow, even to the point of just explaining to them what a contract was and hoping that, you know, now everything was going to be much more fair for them. And how was your family growing up? Were they supportive of you all getting an education and, and moving, you know, moving from the Valley? There's not as many educational opportunities here as there may be in other places. While we're lucky enough to have UTRGV, um, obviously, if you want any um, further degree, such as a law degree, you're going to have to move away from this area. I'm going to preference it with, or I'm going to start with, kind of defending my parents a little. You have to understand that my parents got married when they were 15 and 16 years old. Mm -hmm. My parents didn't know what it was to go to high school, what it was to, you know, go to homecoming, go to prom, or graduate from high school, much less college. So uh, in my mother's eyes, us going away to school was a possibility that we weren't going to do well, where mm -hmm. contrary to someone who's in an educated home, the point was you go to, you go to college yeah. and you get educated. My mother was a little different with me because I was a female. My mother will admit to you that if I got married, graduated from high school, she would have been happy and proud of me. Um, and so that's kind of where we came from. It wasn't really, my father talked about getting educated, but more importantly, he talked about working hard. Mm -hmm. And um, when it came to my older brothers, um, I, I was the youngest of three and I saw my older brothers were getting educated. And, um, and at that point I thought that they were gonna allow me to do that as well. And they did, but with certain restrictions. And one of those restrictions was I was going to stay at UTPA because it was down the street, it was at home, and I was going to be safe. Um, and you asked me earlier when mm -hmm. we started the podcast why I finished school in two and a half years. One was because, yes, I was extremely dedicated, but two, because I did want to leave my home and explore not explore, but expand my education. And I wanted to leave my home and see what was out there. And the only way I could do it was by finishing college and telling my parents that I had to go to law school where there was not one that exists here in the Rio Grande Valley. So kind of piggybacking off of that, um, you know, we live in a very unique area. It's, it's a very uh, high Hispanic population. And coming from some of the older families that have been here for a while, um, even, you know, I felt that when I was trying to leave and go to law school, um, my parents were never that way. But, you know, I'd have extended family members say, like, 
well, why are you going to school? Or, you know, people just that may if we're in our community, we'd be like, well, why do you need to go to law school? Did you feel a, a lot of that? Maybe not from your family, but from the community, like some pushback? I don't think there was any expectations, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think um, I exceeded everyone's expectations. I think everybody would have been kind of expected me just to finish college. And that would have been a good you know, pat on the back. And you did a great job and get married, have a family and make your life here in the Rio Grande Valley. And that was the expectations that they probably had for me and some of you know, my other female cousins, Mm -hmm. uh, and that was kind of what was expected. Uh, I don't, I think we've exceeded, or even myself along with some other female cousins have exceeded a lot of their expectations. And which was neat because that goes into, we've opened the doors for the younger generation. Remember you said we have a huge family. So we opened the doors for our younger generation to have much more courage and say, look, if she can do it, I can do it. And so, you know, I, I kind of am happy that we've given that opportunity to our younger generation and tell and show them that if I can do it, they can do it as well. Uh, One of the things I wanted to ask you about is uh, growing up with your parents, working as migrant workers um, and having to sometimes leave the Valley uh, for for their jobs. Uh, I've heard from your brother, who's my boss, that Mm -hmm. some of the stories that happened along the way, did you, were you able to see firsthand how sometimes, especially uh, Latinos and Latinas were treated not the same as everybody else or they were treated poorly or unfairly you know I didn't I think I was a little bit I was always very confident of myself Mm -hmm. and I never felt um, I was very intrigued growing up with uh, the um, African-American movement with the Chicano movement I would study it in high school before I even went to college so I was very much aware of the discrimination and so I think I already had a shield and I was ready to kind of attack whenever I went to, we migrated. Uh, so I think people kind of felt my aggressiveness uh, whenever they met me. If, if we weren't the same color, you know, I was kind of on mm-hmm. on guard with it because I, was, I had educated myself about, you know, what had happened in the past. And it intrigued me and I was always very, you know, I read a lot. And so yeah. that's what I would learn. Um, but as far as anything personal, actually, it didn't really happen until I went to law school. Uh, really? At one point, um, I was sitting in my law school class at the University of Texas, and I had a classmate who, you know, kind of tried to joke, joke with me and try to say, well, you know that, you know, you know that affirm- the reason you're here is because of affirmative action. And, you know, so that was probably one of the first kind of moments where I felt like, oh, I guess I am different. Um, and especially coming from the Rio Grande Valley, we had comments that were like, oh, so you're from Mexico. No, I'm from the Rio Grande Valley. Oh, but it's the border of Mexico, so you come from Mexico. So we had to always kind of be explaining. I had to be explaining where specifically I live. So it wasn't really until, I think my parents were good about shielding us from those injustices, whatever they could, they would. Uh, But as far as the racism and seeing the different cultures uh, and different races, it didn't happen until I was in law school. Okay, Judge, I'm so glad you brought that up. I had a sort of similar incident happen to me when I started law school, and having lived a majority of my life down here, I didn't really face that type of discrimination before. But it kind of took me aback because it was almost a comment like, well, that's why you're here. Like, you didn't earn your way here. You didn't earn your place to be here. And I felt like that gave me at least the drive to try even harder. Did you experience the same thing, or did you kind of just like... Oh, yeah. I mean, even since I was a little girl, whenever anybody would tell me I couldn't do something, I would turn it around and use it as motivation and and say, okay, I'm going to show you that I can do it. 
And, you know, Lauren, I wasn't the smartest. I can tell you right now, I graduated top 5% of my class in high school. I wasn't the smartest in college. I just worked really hard and even in law school. But I knew that those individuals didn't have the work ethic that I had mm-hmm. because that work ethic came from my upbringing and even from being a migrant worker with my parents. I mean, that work ethic is what was taught to us and what we saw on a daily basis. And I knew in my heart, you cannot work me. But, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna show you that you can't. And so it was motivation. And it's always, you know, been that motivation. And now I use it with my ju- the juveniles I see in front of me. You know, I tell them, look, you're marked. So use that that negativity and as a motivation to do better and to show people. So you graduated with your Juris Doctorate degree in 2005 from the University of Texas. And um, when you finished and you returned to the Valley, what were your plans? What did you do next? Oh, I was your typical Hispanic girl. I <laughs> fell in love and I fell in love with my college, uh, a friend from college. Uh, and uh, he asked me to marry him after nine months of dating. And so after I had graduated from law school, I was engaged. And I was came home and started studying. Oh, after I studied for the bar, I started planning my wedding. And so... Um, you know, I kind of fell into the the expectation of now you're going to get married and have a family. And um, that's what I did when I came back. And so I, after I took the bar and I passed, uh, I, to be honest with you, I didn't pass. I failed mm-hmm. the first time I took the bar. Uh, I think that I failed because there was just so much going on. I was kind of burnt out. You know, I was... I was in love. Yeah. And there was just so many things going on that, you know, I just... I failed. I finally failed at something. And, you know, that was, and I talk about it now. A lot of people say we shouldn't talk about it. You should be embarrassed. And I'm like, no, because again, you know, we're going to fail in life. And if I would have given up then, I wouldn't be where I am today. So then I took it again and I started practicing. And so I, I got married and started practicing. And you are currently married to uh, J.R. Bettencourt, who's mm-hmm. a certified public accountant with Burton McCumber and Cortez. And you currently live in Edinburgh with your beautiful daughters, Gloria, Gloriana Gabriela, Gigi, because she's mm-hmm. 11, uh, Carissa Carolina, Cece, who's 8, and Vitalia Victoria, which is, who's Vivi, who's 5. Um, having, you know, I guess what a lot of people consider the ideal life here, what pushed you even further into into serving the public and, and deciding to run for judge? You know, um, I was very blessed that as soon as I finished law school and I passed the bar, I got the opportunity to work at some pretty distinguished firms. Uh, one of them was Steven, Steve Gonzalez and Associates, um, and he taught me right off the bat very good habits uh, as far as how to practice law and how to run your own law office. And I went off to Ortiz and Millen, and mm-hmm. John Millen, you know, showed me how to, you know, be be good to your clients and treat them well uh, and on the plaintiff side and then um, I finally decided hey I can do this on my own so I opened up my own office and during that time um, I was really successful I mean you can probably ask people around the courthouse I would be running around at eight nine seven eight months pregnant getting court appointments and I I you know um, grew my clientele and then at that point another opportunity came in where they asked me to serve as legal counsel for ECISD, and so with that, I ran with it. I learned school law. I learned how to, you know, um, work with board members, how to give them legal advice, how to still stay, you know, be have a personality with them and have a relationship with them. And I went on to start representing different uh, school districts across Hidalgo County. 
Um, so as you know, you know, it was very good money and I was earning good money. Uh, and at one point in life, I just felt that, you know, materialism kind of started to consume me. And I was raising three girls and I wanted to show them that it wasn't about money or what you had. It was about go back to the core values that my parents taught me about how you treat other people, how you respect other people, and more importantly, how you help other people. And so I think it was God. I'm very religious, and I felt that God finally said, you know what, Renee, this is not, you know, you need it. It's, it's my time. In other words, you need to help me help others. And that's when the 449th District Court, the rumor started going around that the incumbent or the judge who was, who was uh, at, currently the, or at that time currently the 449th judge was not going to run for re-election. And again, the 449th is a unique court because mm -hmm. it is a general jurisdiction court, it is a district court, but it was specifically designed or created to hear all juvenile cases. And I knew that that was my opportunity, that was God telling me, these are kids that need to see you where you come from and you need to help them. Having been involved with you know school board law and with school boards for a couple of years prior to running, um, did you see how important, you know, the educational system and school boards and who's on the school boards are to the community? I did. Um, you know, it, it was sometimes you would see, you know, sometimes you would see the personal interest of, of mm -hmm. those individuals that were on the boards, but sometimes you saw very genuine individuals who had nothing to gain but to help these children. And they were the ones that were more innovative. They were the ones who wanted to try things outside the box and they would come to you for legal advice. They would come to me for legal advice as to whether or not they would do that. So the neat thing about it was I learned the educational system. I learned special ed. I learned, you know, 504. I learned all those. And so working with them, I got to know, you know, special ed, 504. I got to know things about the educational system that, you know, most wouldn't. And on top of that, I was a mother, female, and I felt like I had much more compassion and more you know, want to know the educational system so I could help kids. Um, and in some way, I indirectly or directly, I helped these children, the students of whatever school district I was representing. So when you decided to announce your candidacy for the 449 District Court, um, there, there, it was an opposed race. You had, I believe, was it two individuals? Uh, two opponents. Two opponents mm -hmm. you were running against, and uh, both were male, mm -hmm. uh, older males. Uh, how did you face any opposition, especially once you announced that you were going to run, especially being a female candidate and, and obviously the youngest female candidate to ever be elected to a district court judge bench? At that point, I didn't realize I was going to be young or that I was even young. I mean, I've had at that point, I had three kids. I was raising three little girls. I was already married uh, and practicing for over 10 years. Um, and so when the opportunity arose, and to be honest, again, my parents taught me to be respectful. Mm -hmm. And I was always taught as a lawyer that you respect the judge, regardless of what your opinion is of that person. He's him or her. They are the judge and you respect them. And when I heard that the judge was not going to run, I actually extended. Um, I did place a phone call asking mm -hmm. if he was or not. And he told me he wasn't. And so that's why I said, OK, then I'm going to run. I didn't plan on running against an incumbent. He mm -hmm. changed his mind later and said, I'm, I changed my mind, I'm going to run. So not only was I running against two males, but I was also running against an incumbent. Um, and it was scary because, yes, you're right, I was a female. Um, I was young. Uh, I was going to have to travel across Hidalgo County, which you can 
probably predict is a very diverse group of individuals yes. from the east side of the county to the west side of the county. Um, but you know, again, Lauren, I just I just focused on what my parents taught me. Everybody's equal. Everybody's the same. And if you're genuine and you're passionate about why you want to be on this bench, then they're going to believe you and they're going to support you. That's actually one of the things I wanted to bring up. Um, as more and more women are seeking public office, um, you know, there's some indication that maybe there's different rules for us when we're running. There's different expectations of female candidates and female candidates have to act a certain way. You know, we if we're stern, it can be seen as being bitchy or condescending, whereas maybe if a male was using the same tone as us, it wouldn't. Um, did you run into any of these challenges and, and how did you react to the challenges that you faced when people had different expectations for you and then the incumbent? Well, I think I, what I really enjoyed was when people would first, you know, start talking to me and they kind of would start kind of aggressive, thinking that I was kind of one of these, a female that was aggressive and, you know, um, was kind of, you know, a know-it-all or, you know, just, mm-hmm. you know, trying to be... A lot of men feel that sometimes us women who are educated believe that we're smarter than everybody else or we know it all. Mm-hmm. And we kind of do, but it's how you approach and how you talk to those individuals. And I think a lot of them came were surprised to see just how humble I was and how, yeah, I was still talking, you know, with, I was still talking as if I was intelligent, but I talked to them the way that they understood me. And, and again, I go back to my dad's workers mm-hmm. in the fields. I mean... They were the men that were putting up my my political signs because they wanted to come and help us because that's who we grew up with. It wasn't, you know, we didn't grow up with educated. Some were, some people were educated. We grew up with a diverse group of individuals in our in our life. And so we were, we I was able to kind of talk and with anyone, no matter if they were the richest man in Hidalgo County or the poorest man in Hidalgo County. But yes, it, it was it was funny when you would see their reaction change when they finally got to talk to you and their assumption that you were this know-it-all or their perception that you were this know-it-all changed within 10 minutes of them talking to you and seeing where you came from. And I think it's really interesting you said, you know, as long as you're genuine about why you want to be there, I think that's a huge thing, you you know, finding your passion and following it and and just really, if you want to change the world, being upfront about why you think it needs to change and how you're going to change it. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that served you well on the campaign trail running against an incumbent who had been through previous elections with no challenger whatsoever? Yes, it did because, um, you know, I came across very compassionate. I I had, you know, I, I try not to be negative against my opponent, but... You know, some of the things I had to let the public know, and it wasn't anything that wasn't already out there. I didn't elaborate much on it, but I needed the public to know that, you know, I came from a home of integrity. I was going, I have integrity, that's all I have, you know, and our reputation and and how people perceive us. uh, And so I I wanted to tell people, this is who I am, and this is what I'm going to do in this court. And I had a plan, and I researched, like I, ever since I was young, I would research everything, and I found what the juvenile justice system was, and I knew that there needed to be a lot of reform, and there needed to be change, and it needed to start here in Hidalgo County. And so I just wanted to show people that I was somebody that wanted that job and was ready to roll up my sleeve and do it. Now, you were in a three-person race, so while most races usually have maybe one challenger 
And after the primary, they go on to the general election. And being to be completely transparent, our county is a heavily Democratic county. Mm -hmm. Usually, if you make it past your primary, you can coast until the general. Um, you actually had to go through a runoff. Mm -hmm. So extra time away from your family, extra expense, extra traveling. Um, did at some point it start to weigh on you? And what did you do to stay strong during the campaign? Well, and let me go back. You know, we're talking about female issues. I think that one of the, possibly one of the main reasons I ended up in a runoff was because I was female. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if I was a male with the same characteristics that I, I have, I think I probably would have won without a runoff. But, you know, I had to continue to prove myself. Did it weigh on me? Obviously, yes, because of my time away from home. Uh, but it takes a village, and so I was very blessed with the village who would help me with my children. But no, you know what? It made me appreciate my position. It, it made me see that I had to go even a little further. And every day I appreciated it because, again, when you work for something so hard, it's not a, when you get it easily, you don't tend appreciate to appreciate it. it much. And when it's hard, you appreciate it more. And so it was just kind of God telling me, like, I'm not going to give it to you. You've got to work for it. And then you're going to appreciate it. And so that's how I felt. So uh, I guess piggybacking off of that, you know, uh, there's a, a, I guess it's it's true, it's um, it's a trope, but it's true, um, about the, the boys club, right, in the legal system. And I've heard it from current female attorneys across all spectrums, government, uh, private firms, um, and especially in the judiciary, how, in your experience, having, you know, broken into the judiciary, getting elected in this county, how, how should a female who is contemplating running for office where there may be a quote-unquote boys club uh, approach that situation? I think it's a little different than it was maybe 20 years ago. I think it may be a little easier because um, as, we're, as times are changing and years are passing, uh, for example, some of my closest colleagues in the judiciary are male. Mm -hmm. um, they're the ones who reach out for me for advice and vice versa. Uh, because they're raising daughters now and they're seeing that women, you know, are getting educated and, and holding positions just like them. So I think I think that you have to embrace it. And if you come in with a chip on your shoulder because you think you're female and the odds are against you, then you're going to get some type of um, how do pushback. You say pushback. If you go in and you treat everybody equally um, and you say, I'm just as good as you or I'm, you know, I'm. You're not as good as me, but I'm not as good as you. We're equal. And we're both sitting in the same bench, and we can both make the same decisions. So let's be colleagues, and let's be friends, and let's support each other. And sometimes you'll see that males will be like, oh, okay, great. You don't want to fight with me? then you Because know, that's, yeah. that, that's her perception of us, that you know, right away we have a chip on our shoulder, and we want to fight with them, and we want to tell them why we're smarter than them, why we're better than them. And sometimes we are, and you know, I, I do admit that. But I don't need to go tell them that. They mm -hmm. will come to find that out when they see the decisions I make on the bench or when they hear me when I come to them and I propose something that I want their support with. They see that I make a sound argument and they see that I'm passionate. And so they join in and they help. And so really some of my closest colleagues um, in the years that I've been on the bench have been male. So uh, along those lines, um, do you think it's important, especially since other colleagues, especially male colleagues, reach out to you for advice on whatever matters, uh, do you think it's important that we have a more f feminine pr perspective in the judiciary, especially in the area of juvenile justice? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, you know, we're mothers, we're daughters. 
Um, and I think that we need to have a more feminine perception. And they and, and it's funny when I'm talking to these um, you know male judges, they, they understand and they say, okay, yeah, I, I see it. When you come to them and you explain it and you tell them, look, this is what I see. This is the information I have and this is the data. It's very hard for them to try to you know go against you or yeah. say, no, you're not right. If they do that, then you know that it's just them being you know pride or ego. So, you know, that's kind of another thing we have to deal with, the pride and ego of some, some of the male judges. Yeah, I, I, I've had the opportunity um, because we do have several women's bar events down here and women in the law events that are really, really excellent. There are local bars and local firms put on. And I had the opportunity to see you speak at one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I think that you hit on that really resonated with me was how women need to help other women. And... Um, Speaking to female attorneys across the state, um, as much as all of us seem very excited to help each other, um, some female attorneys have run into situations where other female attorneys were not willing to help them get to where they were or, you know, to get farther. Um, How do you deal with that in trying to inspire other young female attorneys? You know, um, it's, it's not only... It's really also our culture sometimes, our Hispanic culture of, of, you know, sometimes you can't be better than me. And, you know, when I go speak at schools, elementary schools, I tell the little girls, be better than me. Beat me. You Mm -hmm. know, heck, if you're going to run against me, go ahead and beat me because I want you to be better. As a female, I'm raising three young girls and I want them to know that. You know they need to empower each other and they need to support each other even in the juvenile even the juvenile girls that i see i'll ask them did you get in a fight with another girl and if they say yes i tell them why 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 are you getting a fight with a girl who should be helping you and be your friend and instead y'all are beating up on each other i i, I just i don't understand why it's so hard for a female to come together with another female is it pride ego jealousy I'm not sure, but I hope that sometimes, you know, uh, I appear to be genuine. Sometimes people get a perception of me that I might be snobby or maybe unapproachable because I'm a judge. But if you take the time to talk to me, you will see that I'm there to help. And I think every female, especially a judge, should be there to help another up-and-coming lawyer. And and that's what I, that's the other part of my job is that I enjoy these young female attorneys who come into my court and they don't feel the pressure of, okay, I have to do everything right. Man, they'll mess up and I'll help them and I'll give them the advice. I won't embarrass them. You know, and once I feel that they've gotten it and they're still doing it, well, then it's going to be a little different. But at the point that they're in my in front of me, I'm going to help them because I want them to feel, you know, empowered. I want them to feel that, you know, she's helping me. She's not trying to put me down or she doesn't see me as competition. You know, we, in order for our world to be better, we need to help each other. And I think women are the key to making this world better. I agree. And I guess that's why we're doing this podcast mm-hmm. is we, you know, we want to make sure that we highlight female attorneys that can be role models uh, for young female attorneys and, and older female attorneys like in the profession. Um, and one of the things that I think has been super helpful since I started down here is we have a very close-knit com- legal community. Um, and there's always mentors that are available. And across legal community, across gender lines, everyone seems really willing and able to help. How important is it for you 
that we make sure that we have a strong legal community going forward and inspiring young women to get involved in the judiciary or get involved in the local bar organizations. Well, I even go a step further. I think we should start uh, supporting young women even before they even get to law school. For example, I had in the two years that I've been on the bench, I've had three different interns. Mm-hmm. One of the interns that I've had is a female, and she graduated from the University of Texas uh, RGV, and she went on to UT Law. You know, I have another end of, another intern who was uh, UT, who is an undergrad at UT, and she wants to go to law school. So I think it starts from, you know, uh, the youngest that we can get them. Uh, if they come into my court, uh, I'm telling you, an intern just picks up the phone and calls and says, I want to try to intern for Judge Court," and I tell them to come, and I meet with them, and I take the time to talk to them and see what their goals are. And from there, I hope to be a mentor to them so that if they get to law school, they always have me there to help. So I think it's extremely important that we not only start with young lawyers, but we also go a little bit beyond that and look at the young ladies that are interested in being lawyers and not try to discourage them. I I agree. You know, one of our projects at TYLA that we're very uh, proud of is the I Was the First Project, where we go into schools, and I know you are a very big advocate on the bench about going into these elementary schools, going into middle schools, and showing kids, hey, I'm from this community, you can be me, you know, just stay on on a good path, do well in school. Mm-hmm. How important is it for you that that message is out there for those kids? Extremely important. Uh, again, you know, like I told you in the beginning, I wasn't anything special. I wasn't the smartest. I wasn't the, the prettiest. I, you know, I just worked hard. And what I tell people is, at the end of the day, even if you are the smartest, if you're not good to other people, if you don't treat people with respect, and you don't talk or help people, none of that intelligence is going to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tell that to young girls so that they don't think that they just need to be smart and that's it. No, it's more than that. You know, it's about being a human being and being a good human being. Um, and so I tell them, if I can do it, you can do it. And I want you to do it. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I hope one day when these girls may run against me and, you know, they may and they may beat me. And at that point, that's when God says your time's up and you move on to something else because at the end of the day, no one's going to take my law degree away. Um, it, I worked hard for it and I'll just go back to being a lawyer, which I enjoyed doing as well. So it's this is not a position that I need to keep in order to feel important in my life. This is a position that I like and that I enjoy having so I can help others. If one day I lose in a re-election, well then you know what, that's what happens. I'm going to work hard. Um, but that's what happens. It's life. But I'll go back to practicing law and continuing to encourage other females uh, to either run for office or, you know, continue with their own law practice, too. So growing up and and as you're um, growing up and you're going through law school, who did you look up to as your role models? Well, first of all, Judge Giannis. Judge Giannis was somebody mm-hmm. that, you know, I mean, I just, I, I was enamored of her. And then as I grew as an, as I grew as I became an attorney and I grew I, I realized that you know she was very empowering to other women mm-hmm. uh, I was just kind of just enamored at with her uh, just with her achievements um, the others um, I think you know all the female judges in Hidalgo County at one point I admired because they were like me they either went to University of Texas Pan American then went to UT Law I know Judge Leti Lopez did that mm-hmm. I know Judge Isla did that I know Judge Rose did that so you know in my eyes I said if they could do it then I can definitely do it so you know I would watch them and they you know in awe of how they would run their court and 
you know, learn from them and admire them. So, so they served as, as role models, and now they're my colleagues. Yeah, I, I just interviewed Judge Linda Yanez, and, and she is amazing. And her resume is like the most daunting thing I've ever read in my life. But she is incredible and very passionate about oh, yeah. empowering other females in our community. And, you know, with her as kind of the first Latina on the bench of the Court of Appeals, and then with yourself being the youngest elected district court judge in Texas, uh, I think that female attorneys, especially Latina female attorneys, have some really great role models to look up to. And I think that y'all are setting great examples for us. Um, and just the fact that y'all are so willing to help out and willing to sit on our podcast uh, <laughs> is amazing because, um, you know, I think it's it's sometimes we need mentors that look like us yeah. and that sound like us and that have been through the same things that we have. Yeah. And, and again, you know, um, I, I enjoy doing this because, again, I like to tell my story of where I come from, who I am. And, and also I like for individuals that may have a perception of me to know that, wow, you know, she is pretty humble. I mean, she is pretty genuine and, you know, she is approachable. Uh, and I am, trust me. I mean, I may come across quiet sometimes because sometimes my mouth might get me in trouble. So I just stay quiet. <laughs> it's better to stay quiet. And I get that. I get that um, advice from my bro- my older brothers, you know, and that was a good thing about growing up with, with men was my two older brothers is they taught me to be a lady, but they also taught me, you know, to to be able to kind of have relationship with, with professionals who were male and mm-hmm. how to, you know, kind of act in some way and, you know, but they also knew that if I had to defend myself, I was really very able, willing and able to do that at any point in time. So, you know, those are some of the things that I, I am very grateful to my brothers that kind of, they keep, they kept me grounded and they helped me. Um, so, you know, uh, I enjoy doing this. And if anyone ever needs anything, my door is always open. Pick up the phone, call me. And even if I may not have a great opinion about a female, because, you know, as females, we can be petty sometimes. I still will not disrespect that individual and I will still give them the same courtesy as I would give my best friend. If they ask me for something that I can help them with, then I'm going to be willing to put anything aside and help them because that's what we should do. I agree. Mm -hmm. So just to wrap this up, um, would you have any other advice for any of our Shiro listeners who are thinking about going into public service, especially about maybe running for a judicial district court bench? Do your homework. Um, really really know the purpose as to why you're running if you're doing it for a title then don't do it if you're doing it because you genuinely want to help your community or you want to serve as a role model for other women um, then do it and when you're in that job don't be comfortable continue to strive to do more for the community Uh, because again our jobs are not always guaranteed Uh, every four years we can have opponents and you know we can lose our positions but at the end of the day if if you're genuine and you really want to serve the public then do it and you might not win the first go-around you might win you might not but it builds your character and it makes you a stronger individual and again you know you just have to kind of roll with the punches because campaigning is extremely hard it's extremely draining, and um, it can really, you know... Be brutal. Brutal. It can, you know, you get judged, you get talked about, you get told that you can't do this and you can't do that or you're this and that. So it, it's it's difficult, but if you're strong and you're a strong woman and you're doing it for the right reasons, then you're going to you're gonna get through it. 
Thank you so much, Judge Betancourt. Again, thank you for sitting on the podcast. And thank you for all your contributions to our local legal community and to Texas Young Lawyers Association. Well, thank you. And again, I'm here whenever anyone needs me, the 449th District Court in Hidalgo County. And thank you again for this opportunity. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please support the work we're doing by liking the Texas Young Lawyers Association's Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at Tex Young Lawyers. And tune in for our next episode on Wonder Women Wednesday.